Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 191 of the Mandolins of Beer podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. It's also brought to you by Acoustic Disc. Go to Acoustic Disc, where if you sign up for their email list, you get a free treat of the week. Every Thursday, they send you a song from their incredible catalog of music, and it's all free. They also do not spam you with all sorts of crazy stuff, and... They also give you a heads up for when they have new releases, which there should be a new one coming up soon. They usually put something brand new out at the first of the month. And you can always check out the Acoustic Encounters podcast with David Grisman and Danny Barnes. Hey, how's everybody doing? It is August 4th. It's crazy to think that uh, in three more days on August 7th, it will be the fourth year going into this podcast. And I can't thank everybody enough it's easy to remember that date. I put that date out because it was the date my my papa was born, my dad was born, and my nephew Hudson was born. They were all born on August 7th, so I thought, man, I should put the podcast out then to, to celebrate. So, can't believe we're coming up on four years. Also, uh, hey there to any new listeners. Jake Eddy definitely brought some, uh, some, some, some listens in. Uh, it was in the top 20 iTunes music interviews podcasts on Monday afternoon and climbing. I'm not sure where it got to. I should probably check that out, but I couldn't believe that. So welcome anybody who was listening to that. thought it was great to have Jake. Um, he had some really great advice on that one, so it was really fun to do that. Also this week on August 1st, I have um, an article came out about me and the podcast uh, on Bluegrass Standard Magazine, and I'll post a link to that. It's a really, really nice article. I appreciate them doing a feature on myself and the podcast, so that was really cool. Quite quite the exciting week there. I uh, hope everybody else had a great week as well. My guest this week is Forrest O'Connor, um, and I discovered a band that he plays, and we talk about it a couple times, called the Hay Brigade, and it's on Bandcamp, and this is Bandcamp Friday, August 4th. The first Friday means everybody who's on Bandcamp, they get all the proceeds from the purchases. So go out and get your favorite mandolin player's album today. Uh, I recommend that Hay Brigade one, though. Holy cow, there'll be a link below. It's really excellent. Um, and he does Bola Bula on there, which I've actually been playing that song a lot recently. And uh, that's one of my favorite uh O'Connor tunes, especially from that 30-year retrospective album. Uh, but Forrest, you know, I can't imagine how tough it is growing up in the shadow of somebody like his dad, Mark O'Connor. We talk about that, and I feel he's really really made him uh, his own musician of himself. He's fantastic and a super nice guy, and you're going to hear that in this episode. So uh, before we do that, also good reports on the uh, Stringjoy strings coming in. Uh, people who have bought them are just talking about how they sound like they hit the sweet spot immediately. You know, sometimes you put strings on your mandolin and it takes a few days maybe for them to break in a little bit. And a couple people have said, man, you put them on right away. Warm, woody tone, hit the sweet spot. I can't wait to check them out myself. And you can check them out. Uh, Stringjoy is giving mandolins and beer listeners 10% off all their string purchases. So go in, load up mandolin, guitar, whatever you need. Just use the promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word, at checkout. Let's get into the other sponsors this week. Peghead Nation, Peghead Nation streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass. You can learn bluegrass and old time and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in Roots Music. Who you ask? Well, how about Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Fibus, Chad Manning, and Ian Corey. The courses include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. The best part of Peghead Nation, of course, is you go to pegheadnation.com and use that promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word at checkout. You get your first month for free. Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com. Download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. And go to their Instagram, man, that new electric octave. Whew. It is fire, I believe the kids say. So go and check them out, Northfield Mandolins. Ellis Mandolins, handcrafted mandolins designed and built in Austin, Texas. Howdy out there, Ellis. Uh, also building some beautiful mandolins and also an incredible Instagram. 
Tone Slabs. Slabs of Tone. Something very exciting coming from Tone Slabs and Mandolins and Beer. I'm excited for you to check them out. Uh, these things are great. They have all the shapes, sizes, thicknesses, bevels, no bevels. They've got it all. You need to go to toneslabs.com now and get yourself a slab of tone. A uh, bunch of great players have been using them. I haven't used another pick live since I got this this Darth Tone pick I've been using. I love it. It sounds great. Toneslabs.com. In Elderly Instruments, Elderly Instruments is your trusted source for new, used, and vintage fretted and stringed instruments. For the experienced beginner player, their vast selection of mandolins, guitars, banjos, ukuleles, and did I say mandolins? Includes all of the accessories and books to go with them. All instruments are inspected and set up for easy playability, and down-to-earth and knowledgeable staff are there to help. Now in their 50th year, they're family-owned and operated. They ship worldwide, and you can visit them anytime at elderly.com. Matter of fact, you might want to go to elderly.com. We talk a little bit about the Mike Marshall book, Finger Busters. And when I went to find the link for that Finger Buster book at Mike Marshall's website, which you should go to as well, it's got a bunch of great stuff, but it takes you to elderly.com to get the book. So go get that Finger Buster book from Elderly. Tell them Daniel Patrick from Mandolins and Beer said hello. All right, let's get into the interview with Forrest O'Connor. I got to get heading out. My Tom Petty tribute band is playing Party at the Point, which is a big deal here in Charleston. Looking forward to it. If you're there, say hey. And uh, let's listen to a little bit of that Hay Brigade as we head in to this episode with Forrest. Cheers, everybody. Pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Forrest O'Connor. Forrest, how's it going? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Doing good. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to, to do the do the podcast. I'm really excited to talk with you. Uh, just some of your past playing and and stuff has really inspired me. And and then I saw that you have this camp coming up with Isaac Isaac Iker, and I, I thought, well, I should reach out. And first off, let's let's talk maybe a little bit about that camp you guys have coming up in the the new year, and it's in Mexico. Yeah, man, it's such a cool idea. So Isaac um, is a really good friend of mine. I met him at the the mandolin symposium that David Grisman used to hold out in Santa Clara. And that was like, I think it was 2007 or something where I met him. We were both teenagers. And and so, yeah, we've been good friends ever since. And he's, man, he is just one of my absolute favorite mandolin players. I love his, just everything about, you know, his playing tone technique and ideas. And and, and I actually just saw him play a couple weeks ago at the jazz club here in Nashville called Rudy's. It's just amazing what what he's doing. Uh, it's really unique voice he's developed, I I think, on the mandolin. But anyway, so yeah, he had this idea because you know he is fluent in Spanish, um, and he studied it a lot. You know, in in high school and college, and he lived in Spain for a while. And he's actually, in addition to playing he his main job is um interpreting and translating in in nashville so he's always using spanish kind of in his his daily life and um his wife marcella is from colombia in in south america and so yeah there he, he's speaking spanish all the time and so he'd come up with this idea he's been to this this location before but you know, when he asked me to do it, it's like, I, it's such a unique thing. And I'm super excited to, to take part in it. You know, it's, it's a limited number of enrollment, you know, I guess allowed just because the logistics and, and everything. Um, and it's the first, the first year that he's doing it, but I think it'll be really exciting. Certainly beautiful. I know that Manlin Cafe is, you can see some pictures that have been posted on there and and yeah just such a cool a cool idea 
I think it looks great, and it looks yeah, it looks stunning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always want to be able to to go to those things, man. Like Mike Marshall and his wife put on some in some pretty stunning locations as well. I'm always like, oh my gosh, yeah. I wish I had time to do some of these. I know, man. Yeah, it it's it's really cool, and and I hope that he can, you know, because he's also very much into um, to teaching. And so it's kind of combining, you know, several different things that he does well in this camp. So you've worked at some camps before. Yeah, I so I kind of, you know, music camps were a big part of my upbringing. And my dad used to run. Well, he still does, actually, although they've kind of changed gears a little bit. But um, he started a fiddle camp in in Nashville right outside Nashville this really cool campground in like 1994 I think it was the first year and and so I was six and so I there were two every summer and I grew up going to those and that was before I really even played because I was a little bit of a late start in in a late you know bloomer really to even playing or taking it seriously but but so I grew up going to those camps. There were tons of awesome, you know, fiddlers and just musicians of many different instruments teaching and, and hanging out there. And so I, you know, the whole camp mentality and approach had been a part of my life, basically my whole life. And, and so it was, you know, it kind of felt natural to take part in, in teaching at, at camps. I've taught my dad's a few times. And then also at at some camps at different festivals, like the Grand Tarhi Festival, and there was another one at Pagosa in Colorado, and then certainly workshops and, and stuff that the different bluegrass festivals have. And done some of those, and and uh, yeah, it's I mean it's really a lot of fun, and, and really uh, I mean at some of my most like inspiring moments I had. I think we're we're at those camps that I went to growing up. For people who are listening and 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 might not put two and two together with your last name, but your dad is Mark O'Connor. Yeah, uh-huh. I just you know obviously one of the best mu- best acoustic musicians to ever pick up multiple instruments. <laughs> and so <laughs> yeah. yeah, so yeah. some pretty popular camps. Yeah, well they're they're definitely different now he he kind of developed a like a string teaching method and so that's what his his current camps are based on in the past there were it was a little more the kind of he brought in a lot of great players to teach and man the the list of teachers is is pretty crazy um and also the just the people who came up you know and going to those camps like i know one of your recent guests is uh, one of my good friends Brittany haas who i've i've known um you know most of my life and i met her at my dad's camps when i was a kid and i love Brittany and her playing and everything and and there were you know jeremy kittle went there and and just a lot of really good like rashad eggleston and and you know i met dominic leslie probably there yeah i think it was there in in one of the nashville camps you know many many years ago just a lot of cool people and then i know like chris Neely and and brian sutton and guys like that would come out and jam you know in the evenings and stuff and so it was it was just uh just really cool um to be around all of that and chris Neely. Now, it, it, in in reading about you, that's kind of the inspiration for you to take up mandolin. Yeah, I mean, man, I feel like probably most most people, you know, my age or even younger generations, or really any any generation, it's hard not to be, you know, inspired by him. It's just, you know, I mean, one of the best musicians ever on on any instrument. Just incredible what he's accomplished and. And yeah, man, I just love, uh, he's 
like one of my heroes. And so, yeah, it was that first, the first like main Nickel Creek album that was kind of more, I guess, commercially successful. Obviously, they had a couple from when they were kids. I mean, not, they were still kind of kids when they released that one, too. <laughs> right, right. You know, the the first, or I should say it was the first Allison Krauss produced one, so, uh, the self-titled. Yeah, man, just Ode to Butterfly, you know, like all that, all that stuff. And, and the songwriting, too. I mean, that was probably, you know, um, one of my favorite aspects of it was just how they combined the, the playing um, and the sound and tone and everything with these really beautiful songs. Um, and uh, it was like every, it was just one of those albums where every song meant something. Um, and it was you know, listening from start to finish, um, it, every, you know, just every song takes you in kind of a new journey. And I didn't want to skip ahead to, you know, later tracks. I just wanted to listen to everything on it. And I, I wore that album out. And also, of course, his, uh, <laughs> his instructional video, I think I had that on VHS and studied that. And, and I, I just, have gotten to spend a little bit of time with Chris, you know, a few different times. He he and my dad worked together on a couple recordings. And so being able to kind of talk to him directly about just, you know, music and and then more specifically mandolin technique and stuff is was really helpful to kind of getting better, you know, and, and walking away with something to work on. But yeah, he's he's the best, obviously, obviously one of a kind. And yeah, just my, my favorite player. Yeah, that uh that 30 year retrospective collection yeah. that, that he recorded on with your dad is just one of my all time favorite albums. His playing on that is just like it's unbelievable. <laughs> it's that, entire, yeah. uh, that entire double album is just, it, it's a master class. No, man, him, he and Brian, uh, is Brian Sutton's on that too. And um, it's kind of almost feels like a, you know, I, I have a, a couple bootleg recordings of Chris, like jamming with other people. And in a way, it feels like a very well done, well recorded bootleg in a sense. I mean, it's not because it's, you know, an official album, but it's just like, you know, a couple hours of essentially jamming on these really, really cool tunes. And uh, yeah, man, all they're playing. Um, some of my favorite recordings of Brian too, and some of the ideas he has. I just don't, you know. There's so few other guitarists in that in this, you know, in bluegrass at least um, that play like that. I mean, they, he's he's just an absolute. Uh, obviously, you know, listeners will know that too. But just such a such an incredible player now before you got that nickel creek album like gave you the big bug were you were you 
you know, playing much music at that point around, you know, where you had, you become, were you playing mandolin at home or a little bit, you know, or because it could go two ways. I think with a dad, like you have, I mean, there's probably so much music around your house. You could either want to play music like your dad or be like, I don't want to play music at all. (laughs) See, fortunately you (laughs) chose playing music. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, I didn't take it seriously really. I mean, I, tried to play, you know, he tried me on some fiddle lessons and and stuff. And so I played it for like six months or something when I was a kid and it didn't stick. And I tried piano and then I like played trombone and school band and stuff. And yeah, I didn't really, I wasn't serious about it. And mandolin, I started playing when I was 13. And, and so, you know, it felt at that point, just given the, you know, the, the scene, it felt late. And I know that now obviously I've, everyone's different and, and learning rate is different and, and it just, uh, you know, it's a combination of a lot of things that, uh, kind of inform or guide how you improve and, and what your goals are on, on, on an instrument. And for me, I, I felt like I was late to it. And so I worked extra hard to try to catch up. And, uh, but yeah, I, you know, I, I think that for me, the most important thing looking back on it was just, I was around so much music, um, growing up and not just listening, you know, to recordings, but actually like being around some pretty awesome players that I think the musicianship or musical ideas were were like I heard those from a very young age and so I think that paid off later on so even though maybe the playing and the technique took a while to to get there and catch up at least the music you know was there mentally to to some extent kind of ingrained yeah it's like osmosis I would imagine you know just absorbing it without even thinking about it and just you know having all that just in there floating around to eventually be like, Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I know right. I know how good stuff yeah. sounds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Now it's got, a, a, you know, another thing too is as you're going on this journey and obviously you got, a, I mean, st- it's so funny to say starting late at 13, but you know, I've interviewed people on here like, yeah, I started at four. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you know, as a teenager, then you, you know you've also got this. Were you were you using your dad as a sounding board, or were you kind of like rebellious and being like, "I can do this on my own"? Well, I wouldn't say it was really rebellious. I mean, I I traveled around, you know, with my dad during the summers, and so I was around him a lot. You know, then he, you know, I mean, he was really just a huge inspiration too to me and, and role model for for playing and so I would say that I don't know because you know there is that dynamic of just the the children of people who are like you know I guess what is successful at something and how you handle that and so I was I was aware from the beginning that there was going to be that I I don't know the right word if it's judgment or shadow or perception or whatever it is a comparison and I was able to not really worry that much about that and kind of play through it because you know just like with anyone you have to be willing to make a bunch of mistakes in public you know whether it's in jams or performing or whatever whatever it is um and i certainly did plenty of that and for whatever reason just didn't mind that much that you know every time i felt flat on my face or something playing that you know the thought would be oh it's it's not mark or whatever i don't know i just because i i also agree with that you know like i mean he's he's one of a kind and 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 i look up to his playing and you know really always have and and so and then i also kind of part of it though was that i was trying to combine 
you know, playing mandolin with, with schoolwork. Um, so I was, I was pretty, you know, dedicated to academic stuff. And, and so had that whole side of my life also, and knew that it was just a different, you know, different path that, that I was taking. and was hoping that music could be a part of it because I loved it so much, but didn't really have, you know, my story and situation was just so different from my dad's that I was okay with, with whatever that looked like. And you really have blossomed outside of the shadow or however anybody would want to call it of your dad. I mean, you're, you're just a great singer, songwriter. It's really impressive to see the path that you've forged for yourself, which, I mean, I can't imagine you know, some of that pressure, like you said, oh, that's Mark's kid, or oh, he's not Mark, or and, and nor should you be Mark. <laughs> you know what I mean? You need to be, yeah. <laughs> which is great. You, you're for us, and you found that for yourself, which I think is great. I, I really do enjoy your songwriting, and and you're, you have a fantastic oh. voice as well. Well, I'm still driving my daddy's van, my soul in the sky, and my head in the sand, chasing the dream that withered long ago. Got aches in my back, aches in my heart, and when the music ends, the hurting starts, because there ain't no freedom. Well, well, thank you. I really appreciate that. I definitely, you know, worked hard at that, and, and that was something, I, I was definitely really late to, to singing. I didn't even start, I did not sing at all growing up, um, and so I just kind of came to it in college, and uh, and that was, you know, when, that, that was one thing that my dad didn't really do much of and so you know later on when we played in a, a band together it was cool to be able to have those complimentary things that that we could do that kind of helped make the band work but yeah you know i and i think one of my favorite aspects of of what my dad has done is his writing and he's composed a lot not just in the you know, kind of smaller ensemble setting, you know, like the 30 year with Chris and Brian stuff, but, but also like classical compositions and he played, had a, a swing group for many years and just a lot of different styles that he would write for. And so writing was always like a, a goal of mine to, to kind of hone and get better at now you mentioned college. You, um, you went to Harvard. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, um, I, yeah. That you're definitely the first person from Harvard that's been on this podcast. <laughs> so. Okay. Yeah. Well, I know. You know, it's funny because Brittany, uh, she went to Princeton. So we. Yes. Uh, that's that's this. Uh, yeah, there aren't. I mean, there's not a huge uh, bluegrass contingent there. Maybe there is in Boston, for sure, but. But yeah, I know Brittany was, of course, very unique, you know, in her, in her setting there, too. And um, although, of course, she was much more accomplished by the time she even went to Princeton. I mean, she had albums and had been touring for years and, and stuff like that. For me, I was just, I didn't even really start performing until I got to, to college. So it was, it was sort of different. But anyway, yeah, at least being in Boston, you know, was was really great with Berkeley there and NEC and a lot of good schools and really good music scene too. So it was a good setting for that. What did you go to school for? Well, I didn't really uh, go initially with a specific major in mind. I think a lot of people who go there kind of wait to figure out what it is that you know, they want to major in after you, because you kind of have a little bit of time to, to choose. And so it's nice to be able to just take classes in different, different subjects. And I, man, I thought about probably half the different majors that they had at one point I considered, I man, I love, I love writing and love history and all that stuff. And so I thought about all that. I ended up doing a, um, they have this tiny department there that's called special concentrations which is you know kind of a funny uh just a slightly 
you know, pretentious name for just designing your own major. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, so I like, I kind of realized that I did want to do something with music just because I, I really liked the the academic side of it too. And the theory, I was just really into that. But also specifically, you know, before I knew what major I wanted to choose, I had an idea to write a thesis about mammalism. And so I kind of actually, which is a little bit backwards maybe, but I had that as a goal. And so I wanted to figure out a major that would accommodate that. And so in this special like major uh, department, I ended up calling it sociomusicology again, sort of pretentious, but, um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, it's, it was basically like music combined with other things, uh, English and literature and history and, and, uh, anthropology and stuff like that. And yeah, so it was, it was really fun to kind of design, you know, your own, own, uh, it wasn't really designing courses. It was just putting together a curriculum that like fit, you know, the major that I, I came up with. Um, and so I didn't have to like fulfill all the specific requirements of any department that was already there. I just kind of came up with my own in conjunction with a couple of teachers there. And is that where you formed the Hay Brigade? Yeah. champion is pretty crazy uh, uh, Irish button accordion player and he's from upstate New York and just a, a incredible player I happened to just have a you know we we had a music theory class together he was one year ahead of me and so we started jamming and and uh, brought in a couple other people that we knew and that was the first band that we put together you know an unorthodox instrumentation of mandolin fiddle bass and accordion and um, so no guitar or anything and uh and so we played around boston and and one of the the fun things which i i probably shouldn't reveal but um there was a a chapel on uh in harvard yard and dan had discovered that one of the windows um, didn't lock. <laughs> and so we would break in <laughs> at like midnight to jam and we just climb through, someone would climb through the window and then unlock the door from the inside. And it was like kind of one of the best places to, to play because, you know, at that hour, all the dorms are, you know, people are sleeping or studying or whatever. And so, yeah, that was our, uh, that was the genesis of, of that group. <laughs> That's one of my favorite finds this year, man. That's a it's I recommend people you get this album on Bandcamp. It's only seven bucks and it is killer. Yeah. <laughs> it's so oh. good. <laughs> that was fun. Yeah. Um and Duncan Wickle, who has been, you know, really part of the the bluegrass scene and it, it plays many different styles, but he's an amazing fiddle player and and so he, you know, is part of that group and i know he's played at plenty of festivals and stuff over the years yes that was a lot of fun so you put this out it looks like it came out in 2010 in 2014 you won the tennessee state mandolin championship yeah what was that experience like again you know that's you started pretty late so you're playing you know i'm assuming you're going up against kids who started when they were four <laughs> five years old right yeah yeah, I mean, there were, well, I, my dad, like, grew up playing in fiddle contests and stuff around the, around the country. And so I, 
you know, when I started getting better at mandolin and just good enough to like play shows and stuff, I, I'd always wondered if I should enter a contest just for, for fun. Like I had a mixed, I had mixed feelings about it, but I decided, you know, it would be worth, worth it to just try it. And, and so, yeah, it was like the Tennessee state contest in, in Clarksville. And I had just, so I was living in Boston until um, early 2014. And so I just moved to Nashville and was doing a lot of different things to try to get more involved in the, the scene here. And, and yeah, just figured I'd give it a, a shot. And that's the only contest I've done. I haven't, you know, done any others. I know like Rocky Grass has one. And of course there's Winfield and stuff, which I, which actually Isaac, who is doing the Mexico Mandolin Retreat, Isaac has won Winfield a couple times and he's, I mean, he first won it when he was like 15 or something. <laughs> and, um, and so, but yeah, it was, it was to do that. I don't really know if I'm much of a, uh, contest, you know, there some, there's some guys that, you know, go around to all the different contests and it's such an art form, you know, like I, to kind of put together arrangements that succeed in contests and everyone is different you know you kind of get a sense of like stylistic differences uh, from festival to festival or different regions and i know at least that's the case for sure with fiddle and with mandolin i maybe i don't know quite as much i imagine there that would be the case to some extent but i mean there's just you know so many good players who are during the and I know you I, you mentioned earlier when we were talking uh, before this interview, Jake Jolliffe, who's, you know, one of the best, of course, yeah. players. And I know he's done Winfield. And, and uh, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I figured I would just give it a give it a try. And, and it worked that time, which was <laughs> fun. <laughs> but, yeah, I'm not I'm not sure I'll do another one I, and, unless I really, you know, work out for it. Maybe one day. But it, it was a cool experience. What did you, uh, do you remember the songs you played? Was it Fork a Deer? Maybe it was that. But I, I mean, this, maybe this is a little, a little silly, but I remember hearing a story about my dad um, playing, I don't know if it was, which, which tune it is, if it's Sally Gooden or, or something, where there's a minor section that he did in a contest and then he like didn't win and he found out that one of the judges or a couple of the judges say like, you know, we don't play that minor section down here or something like something just really <laughs> hilarious like that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I was like, oh, I might test the waters. So I just came up with a minor part, like a C part, you know, cool. that goes into minor for that just to like, I don't know. I was like, well, either this will, this will help set it apart or it will end me, you know, end me up in last place or something. So, I guess it it worked in that case, but yeah. So I think I think it was working deal if I remember correctly. <laughs> and then 2016, you guys do the um, the O'Connor Band, which ends up winning a Grammy. And dude, your solo on Jerusalem Ridge is oh. <laughs> dude. Uh, what was your thought process if you remember that? Because it is just never takes away from the song, but it is not. It it is one of those things that like I always like to liken it like driving and just being like I need to pull over <laughs> and make sure I oh, don't man. forget to remember to listen to this a bunch more times. So I, <laughs> you know, let's talk a little bit about that. That was, I don't really, you know, like recording, just one of the things I've learned, at least for me, is 
it's better as sometimes you get the most interesting like uh performances if you don't prepare too much um and so i think one of the things that was cool about making that album was it was like we had only played like two shows before we made that um album and i think that it was still so fresh that like sometimes the more creative or exploratory side of your brain is still kind of firing um more it's like it it approaches it a little bit differently because you're still having to think um like when you when your sensibility to like new arrangements and new pieces is heightened um that can bring out some really interesting stuff and so i always like um recording songs i don't know very well um <laughs> and because uh, yeah I, I just found that if i played stuff too much um you know i i don't want to say i lose inspiration but um but sometimes there's that part of the the brain that is more active when you're trying to concentrate on like remembering things that isn't firing quite the same way um and so um i don't know i just feel like throughout that everyone was kind of on edge a little bit because we're just like trying to remember these <laughs> these arrangements and stuff and so i kind of feel like that contributed to like some some cool stuff that came out but i don't i don't really know i i do remember that it was we did that at um at house of blues studios which is not it's not called that anymore i think it's east iris now um in nashville it's just in the berry hill neighborhood and it was one of my first experiences making a full album in a really nice studio like i'd recorded in in nice studios but usually only for like a song or two and so it was like you know i was already a little just kind of more I don't know if nervous is the right word, but just like, you know, kind of excited and like, and psyched to be doing it. And so there was a level of intensity with it too, that um, just, you know, being in this really cool studio setting and and having to try to squeeze in, you know, a lot of, a lot of material that was new in like a three day, four day window, whatever it was. And so I think that all kind of, I'll fit into it. Yeah, that that solo totally gives me the vibe of just like just let it rip. <laughs> like, yeah, here comes my break, yeah. and I am just gonna. This is what I'm feeling right now. Yeah, it hits me right, right in the gut. I love it. That's cool. Yeah, sometimes it it can go. I've had the experience where it goes one of two ways. Where like <laughs> if you if you concentrate too much, that can lead to kind of tripping up a little bit. Like if you're trying to like, oh, I got to get it right, you know, because all these other people in the room and like time is money and I have to get this. I only have so many chances or the other side is just like, try to turn off the, the hypercritical part of your brain and like, just go for it. And, you know, maybe you'll, you'll kind of flub, but maybe not, you know, maybe it'll, um, if you get into a sort of a different zone, mentally um where you're just trying to channel things that you've learned or worked on without being too like worried about it like worried about getting through and i think that's what kind of you know came out because sometimes I'll, I'll i would like record stuff and i didn't even really remember what i'd played it was just because i sort of get in a in a zone or something and and then hope that it turns out well. Yeah, so it's just I don't know. Recording is so that's a whole other, you know, conversation about the the psychology of, of recording and and uh, that's really interesting to me. But but yeah, it was it was definitely a fun session. I mean, there's some cool, you know, stuff that we got. And my wife Kate, her voice on. Um, I mean, she she's just one of my favorite singers, and so her her singing on that on the album that we did is just beautiful and. And so that was fun to be able to work on that with her too. That's a uh, that album is great too, and that's a a great example of he's talking of things going one way or the other. When you put a band together with that much firepower, there is the possibility of it sounding sterile and overproduced, and just you know 
boring and that album is not any of those things you know and and, and the amount of musicianship on there is incredible and just the uh it's a very very soulful sounding record i it is as far as the feel of it to me i love it oh cool well thank you so much and yeah i i mean i do think that it's 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 nice to balance some of the more up-tempo stuff with with some slower songs that you know that have a lot of space and and we did definitely focus on our the soundscape and uh you know really trying to capture sounds as as nicely as as we could obviously that there's such a range of of recording quality out there especially nowadays with with you know home studios and everything and so getting getting the a real nice depth and sparkle and everything in, in the sound was was uh something that we worked on a lot i'd love to talk a little bit just like from being a late starter and some of the things that you feel you worked on as a player to i mean to get to the level where you're at but even to get to that level like what I would consider even more quickly than, <laughs> you know, uh, the, I would say the average person, but you know, you obviously put a lot of time into it and I'd love to, to know just maybe some of the things that you felt helped you along your journey. Man. Well, I, I know like that one of the main things I focused on early cause I'm, I was largely, I guess, self-taught. I mean, I, I did have a, a really great, um, music teacher. I lived in Montana for a few years when I was in high school, and um, Eric Hutchins was a music teacher there. So I, I learned from him um, on a more regular basis. But that was more general music and some mandolin, but but also other, you know, just music kind of more widely. And so for me, it, it was more about like putting together bits and pieces of information that I got from different people and so like chris and my dad were probably the two most influential just like asking them about approaches to playing and technique and and things like that that really helped so i focused a ton on technique like probably out of balance actually like i there was a stretch when I was in high school where that's all I did. And I didn't even really learn repertoire or tunes or anything like that. It wasn't until like I started combining, you know, working on technique with, with actually learning fiddle tunes that I got better where I could really, I felt like I was improving more quickly. Um, but I do know that man, like the number of hours I spent just with a metronome and doing cross picking exercises is like that, I it it felt fulfilling like I know that that can be boring to some people but something about that for me maybe the analytical side of my brain or whatever it is like it just felt great to like practice really slowly I remember I uh you you're I'm sure you're familiar with Wes Corbett oh um, yeah yeah who's been playing with Sam uh, Sam Bush and so I met Wes also when I was a teenager and I was hanging out with him and, and Tristan and Tashina Claridge, a really amazing fiddlers. And I remember the, the discussion about practicing with a metronome came up and I think I, if I remember correctly, I think Tristan had said he usually started at 60 beats per minute for practicing a fiddle tune and building it up slowly from there. And then Wes, it, it was sort of like funny because he said he's, he slows it down even more than that. Like he's started, started at like 40 beats per minute, which is, you know, very slow, <laughs> yeah. but I was like, dang, okay. 40 beats per minute. Like I need to try that. So I, you know, after that, I just started practicing, you know, a lot of the exercises in Mike Marshall's Finger Busters um, technique book uh, at 40 and then really slowly building it up. 
And so I kind of came up with like, for my, myself, my own approach was just, you know, a few beats per minute at a time where I would do a certain exercise at 40 and then build it up to let's say 46 or something. And then increments of six from there and just pushed it to as fast as I could get it without, you know, making mistakes without accidentally hitting other strings and stuff like that. And, um, and just doing that, you know, day after day after day for years, basically to the point where I like, there were some times where I was, I would do it when I was at, um, in my mom's house in Montana, where it was like, she was trying to go to sleep. And so I had to go outside on the sidewalk. (laughs) and do it out there. So I would just like practice cross picking on the sidewalk and, um, you know, in our neighborhood. And so I just, I loved doing that. Like there was something that just felt really cool about knowing that the, the work put into technique was, was paying off because then it just made everything else that much easier and, and, you know, building strength and kind of figuring out what muscles you what what you should use um which ones you might be using that weren't really effective or contributing to the sound or maybe the you know balancing being too tense with too loose all that stuff it just takes a lot of time to kind of figure out and ingrain and uh and so yeah a lot of it was just time spent with a metronome pretty much <laughs> you, you also have great tone and uh, on like YouTube videos and different things. I've seen you play a few different instruments, but yet your tone is still very uniquely you and it's very full and clean. And I'm wondering some of the things maybe you worked on uh, to get such great tone. Oh man. Um, Well, (laughs) thank you. Uh, I guess, um, man, well, certainly like, I think having a, and I remember learning this from from David Grisman with that one summer that I went to the mandolin symposium where it's like you sort of have a a concept of the sound that you want before you play it. And so, you know, like Grisman can pick up any instrument and it's going to sound like him. Uh, any mandolin, any, you know, whatever, whatever it is. And so... I think like going into playing with that in mind, you know, I know it sounds sort of like theoretical and nebulous and stuff like, well, how does that really translate, you know, when you just think of something and, and achieve that. But I I think there's something to that where like, for me, I guess, you know, listening to Chris so much, I, and I just loved his tone and you know, who else, has maybe my favorite tone these days is Sierra. Oh, and dude. Um, I mean, she's just the, and I, I love Sierra. She, I've known her for a long time and, and she's so sweet, but just in, like the best, you know, the tone that she gets is probably my favorite. I would, I would think it's probably a lot of people's favorite, but, um, but yeah, it's like that kind of richness, you know, and I, you know, when it comes to the, the technical aspects of it, I, it's just whatever combination of, of pick and pick angle and, and attack and all that stuff where you're kind of placing it on the strings, you know, that just gets honed over time. So I, you know, I guess like for me personally, obviously a lot of people use blue chip. I do too. You know, it's like whatever that combination is that works for people to to emulate the tone of people that you listen to and the tone that you want. And it's been interesting to hear certain mandolin players whose tone evolves over time just based on how they artistically evolve, what the sound is that they're trying to capture. And so, you know, like to go back to Isaac, um, he also has j- unbelievable 
like beautiful tone. And so he's a, a like a kind of inspiration for me too, because he comes from the the camp. I think uh, that airs more on the the Chris, you know, very smooth, sweet playing. And again, I, I would say that this is more, I'm you know, Chris of the early two thousands. You know, Chris's sound has developed has changed a lot over time. And so, I mean, his, he's uh, still the the best, but, but I do think there was something about his approach to playing with some of the nickel Creek stuff early, like early two thousands. That was the, the thing that kind of clicked with a lot of young players. Um, and Isaac, you know, was one of them. So he's incorporated that into his, his playing and so yeah it's like the smoothness and just kind of figuring out how you can do that comfortably and you know that's the other thing though too that makes this complicated is like everyone's anatomy is is different with hand and finger size and arm length you know i have pretty like i have longer like spindly (laughs) fingers and um (laughs) And so sometimes I, I, you know, mandolin's already a small instrument, but, but I, it feels particularly small. Like I would say like mandola actually feels a lot more comfortable to me, but yeah, I, I guess just, uh, hearing a tone, you know, and then trying to emulate it for a long time and eventually getting to that point. And actually, you know, my dad, um, he, he plays mandolin now too. Um, he'd quit for a while, but the stuff that he used to do like on sessions and with strength and numbers. And, um, that was, you know, I really liked the tone that he got also. Um, and so that, that was something that I kind of looked up to as well. The funny thing was he used a, like a, a Diodario guitar pick, um, <laughs> whenever he played. So it was, it was very different back in those days. Obviously there were some tortoiseshell picks floating around, but, but yeah, he, I don't know how he did it either. It was not the pointed end of a, of a teardrop. It was the, one of the, you know, softer rounded ends. And I can't do that. I've tried. And, um, it's so hard for me to, to, you know, <laughs> play, play with that pick. But anyway, that's, that's what he used. So very different from anything like a big blue chip, you know, triangle. Yeah. So everyone, you know, it's like people can achieve similar things using very different approaches. I, I I still blows my mind watching dog play some of them fast passages with that dog pick that is so rounded. It blows my mind. <laughs> like how? Do oh you, my gosh! No yeah, tip on that it, thing at all. <laughs> right, and also like man, I remember when I was out at the symposium, I played Crusher his um, lore, and I mean no frets on it. Like <laughs> it, it was like it, it the fretware was down to the board. Wow. Um, and and then the interesting thing though was it's kind of like that was part of the sound. Like, cause I felt when I played, it was like, Oh wow. I, I kind of see one of the ingredients, you know, in this tone it was like that kind of really low fret sound. And that obviously he didn't always, um, you know, he had mandolins refretted and stuff, but it was like when I played it that day, it, that kind of clicked, like, you know, it's even something like that contributes to the, the sound in a positive way. Ordinarily you'd think like, well, you have no frets you better get it refretted but maybe there's something cool about that that can contribute to a sound too let's talk a little bit about gear um we talked about your you use blue chip picks what type of a mandolin are you currently what's your main axe um so i play an oliver apidius mandolin and it's um i mean you know there as you know there there's so many good builders it's it's just crazy the the talent that's out there and and i've i've played a number of different ones you know over the years so like on with o'connor band i, I was mainly playing an altman uh, bob altman mandolin that was awesome and um and michael hyden is also one of my favorite builders and so and, you know isaac plays a, a hyden and uh of course all the normal names i played at dudenbostel for a, a while and man i would have held on to that and lynn is is so cool and really 
such a nice guy. I had this, I had to sell my dude Bostel. Uh, it was an A model to like start a business. That's a whole other long story, but anyway, I, I would otherwise still have that. Family, but, <laughs> yeah. um, but yeah, so a piteous, this is, you know, for me, if for the purposes I use it for recording and just comfort playing, it's my favorite mandolin. It's unbelievable. I, I think what he's building right now is as good as anything out there. And this one, the one I play was his, it's a pretty cool one because, you know, he's been, he's had different sort of designs and bracing patterns. Like he had a grand classic model that's, a, you know, just a little bit different. It's like these tweaks on the F5 the typical kind of lore design with bracing and everything. But this one that I have was his prototype lore spec mandolin. So oh, wow. he, he, he studied, I think he said six different lores and like, and checked out the graduation specs on all of them and then kind of came up with this. And so he sent it to Carter's a few years ago and asked me to try it and, and share my thoughts on it and i played it and my thoughts were i want it <laughs> and uh and so yeah so i got that one and i've been playing it ever since and uh man i just i love it it's it's just a beautiful work of art what kind of strings do you like to use i have used diadario as long as i can remember um and uh, i remember trying elixirs like a long time ago and um and then just kind of comparing those to Diderios and for me I I prefer the Diderios a little bit more. And I kind of really haven't tried much else. I know there are other other you know good string companies, but since that was working, I never really <laughs> right. needed to to try anything. But yeah, Diderio mediums and I use the the coated ones, which are I think are great and they last a long time. Cool, man. Well, I've got two more questions for you. Real quick, before before we get to those last two questions, I do want to point out, we, we talked about this before the recording too, but you do have a record on Compass of Records. Again, one of those things that COVID kind of came up and, and put it on the shelf for a little bit here, and, and that is eventually going to see the light of day. So, you know, you used to, like you were mentioning before, you used to do a lot of touring and, and recording, but you know, that kind of put it on the shelf for a little bit here. So for fans listening, there is going to be that album eventually going to see the light of day. Yeah. Yeah. We have a, we're sitting on a whole album. My wife, Kate, who is either the lead singer in the O'Connor band is just, just an unbelievable singer. And we, we worked really hard on, on that. It's all songs that we've written and uh so it's it's all recorded and it'll be it'll be out there some i would say that it's probably in a similar vein in some ways to the o'connor band just where some similar instrumentation and uh but yeah all all stuff we've written and primarily she's she's the singer on them and so uh she's been dealing with some um, some pretty serious health issues for a couple of years. And so we haven't been able to, you know, go on the road or anything, but yeah, we'll get it out there one day. And, and Allison Brown, who runs Compass has been really, well, Allison and Gary West have uh, been really great to, to work with and, and, um, understanding of this, this situation. So hopefully it'll be out before, before too long. Fantastic. Well, let me know when it is and I'll be sure to let everybody Everybody out there who listens to the podcast know too, because I'm looking forward to hearing it for sure. Yeah, awesome, definitely. So, yeah. um, the the last two questions. The first one is: if you only had ten minutes a day to work on something to get better, what is something you would recommend to someone to do? Um, or what would something you do? You only had ten minutes right now to grab your mandolin and play for the entire day. Uh, what would you work on? Wow, that is a a good question. Well, I would probably divide the 10 minutes. And, you know, for me, it was just always about combining in equal measure technique and repertoire. And so I would probably 
you know, <laughs> stretch a little bit and then, and then just play really slowly, you know, maybe a basic cross picking exercise and just build up the tempo over the course of the first five minutes. And then, um, find a, you know, a new tune, let's say like a, a fiddle tune or something and, you know, learn the, the listen to the, let's say the A part a couple times and try to pick out, uh, pick it out, you know, on, on the instrument and just play it really slowly until you feel like you've ingrained that. And I know five minutes, the, the second five minutes of that 10 minute window wouldn't give a ton of time for that, but you can definitely at least get the roadmap for it. And then next day, you know, kind of build that up and, and again, start slowly and, and just increase the, the tempo a little bit until you are feeling comfortable playing it a little bit faster and a little bit faster and build up to tempo. And so that can, you know, take, take part over the course of a couple of weeks. But uh, yeah, just kind of the combination of those two things, you know, specifically if you're focusing on, on improving with, you know, your, your accuracy and speed and, and tone and comfort level. That's, I guess that's what I would recommend. Well, you've got great tone and speed, and those are two tough things to have at the same time. So people should heed yeah. that advice. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and then the last question is, uh, do you have a favorite beer? I uh, really like Blue Moon, you know? I do, too. Fresh fresh slice of orange in that in that bad boy, that's a, that's a great beer. Yes, for sure. That's, that's generally what I, what I look for. Yeah, if I whenever I order one. <laughs> <laughs> well, excellent. Man, Forrest, this has been such a pleasure talking with you. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, I'm looking forward to that that new album, but in the meantime, people can go out and check out. You've got Wise Water, that's available out there. The Hay Brigade, which I highly recommend. That is really, really cool. And um, and then the O'Connor the O'Connor Family Band album, too, is fantastic stuff. So plenty of stuff for people to listen to if they haven't checked you out already. Yeah, well, well, thank you so much, and and I love your your podcast, and you've had some amazing guests, and such a great idea. So, oh, um, thanks. I'm honored honored to be a part of it. I really appreciate it. Oh man, anytime, buddy. All right, thank you so much to Forrest for doing the podcast. What a nice guy. Go out and check out the Hay Brigade. Uh, again, it's on Bandcamp. It is Bandcamp Friday. If you're listening today, the fourth of August. So they get all the proceeds and it's only seven bucks. Some really great stuff on there. Other than that, thanks so much. Cheers, everybody.